O God, you are my God, I seek you. My soul thirsts for you, my flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in my sanctuary, in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I'll bless you as I, long as I live. I will lift up my hands and call on your name. My soul is satisfied as with a rich feast, and my mouth praises you with joyful lips. When I think of you on my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be prey for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult. For the mouth of liars will be stopped. Our second reading is Galatians chapter 4, starting at verse 26. Oh, 3, 26. For in Christ, Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. As many of you, are, as were baptised into Christ, have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is no longer Jew or Greek. There is no longer slave or free. There is no longer male and female. For all of you are one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise my point is this, heirs, as long as they are minors, are no better than slaves, though they are the owners of all the property, but they remain under guardians and trustees until the date is set by their father. So with us, while we, are mi we were minors, we were enslaved to the elemental spirits of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as children. And because you are children, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a child. And if a child, then also an heir through God. One of the most uh, important and interesting, actually, interactions between the disciples and Jesus is recorded in Luke chapter 11 when they ask Jesus to teach them to pray just as John the Baptist taught his disciples to pray. And what Jesus said next um, has changed the course of history. It's guided the lives of literally billions of people into an engagement with God that has sustained and enrich them uh, through what must surely be the most prayed prayer in all the world, the Lord's Prayer. Now, the, the fact that the disciples ask to be taught to pray itself teaches us two things. Uh, on the one hand, despite the fact of what we sometimes fear, it shows us that prayer is not natural to us. It's not easy, it's not automatic, 
uh, it's not like falling off a log. Falling off a log or a, or a bike, that's pretty easy. Any, any fool can do that. But, but prayer is something that you need to be schooled in. Prayer is something we need to be taught about. It's nature and centre and boundaries and experience. Or if I can put it another way, if you don't find prayer easy, if you don't experience prayer to be something that just sort of rolls out of you as second nature, <coughs> you're onto something. That's fair enough. Uh, secondly, and at the same time, this uh, answer that we get from Jesus also shows us something crucial, namely that prayer can be taught. That prayer can be learned. That it's not beyond any of us to have a rich, deep, praying life. That it's profoundly engaged with God in that crucial part of our life that's away from the eyes of others, seen only by the God who knows the secrets of our hearts. Um, in a sense, this integrated series, which uh, Fiona has introduced us to with a booklet, is us as a church asking Jesus to teach us to pray. With the same hope and confidence that as he loved those first disciples and taught them, so he loves and will teach us. <clears throat> Our topics are, are pretty plain sounding. Uh, you'll see them in the booklet, the, the reason that we pray, the one to whom we pray, the content of our prayers, our stance in prayer, and then finally Jesus' model of prayer, uh, the Lord's Prayer. But underneath the simplicity of the topics is something that I suspect that, that actually everyone yearns for, uh, whether they're Christian, believer or not. Everyone yearns for a deep, rich spiritual life of communion and connection with God. Lord, teach us to pray. And so as we start on this uh, journey of the next month together, uh, tonight, we're going to ask the fundamental question, really, why pray? And you'll see that uh, I'm going to break it down into three points. Uh, firstly, to just kind of face the brutal facts, try and get a bit of a grip on why we don't pray. Uh, second, to look at why we need to pray, and then finally, why we can pray. So firstly then, why we don't pray. Uh, you have told us, actually, you, you filled in that survey, uh, uh, which we did beforehand, and it's, it's just a good moment to take stock and re reflect a little on uh, what it is that we've kind of said about prayer and just how kind of hard we find it to do. Um, I'd suggest that there's actually never been a context in which praying makes less sense than in modern Western culture. As a culture, we've turned away from ultimate origins and destiny as guiding principles in life. <coughs> and we've turned inward to nearby causes and outcomes. Atoms hitting atoms, physics and chemistry and biology and and economics and psychology, these are the spiritual currencies of our age. Although, of course, as soon as you say that, you realise that they are hopelessly incapable 
of fulfilling that task as if they could. Now, the Christian conviction is that there is an ultimate origin and there is an ultimate destiny. There is a beginning and an end that holds in place our middle time in a way that makes sense and has dignity. Namely, the true and living God who is both personal and infinite. Because the truth is that prayer only will make sense as you grasp the reality in your heart of the infinite personal God. Uh, Scripture bears witness to this infinite personal nature of God, the living and true loving Lord of all the earth, again and again and again. I'm just going to give you three quick texts. I could choose thousands. Psalm 23, you remember how it starts? The Lord is my shepherd. I don't know if you've ever sort of paused to to notice what it is that the the psalmist David is affirming at that point. Uh, The Lord, Yahweh in Hebrew, um, literally uh, a derivation of the verb to be, the one who has his existence from himself. Literally, his name means, I am who I am, or I will be who I will be. I'm dependent on no one and nothing. I'm before all time and forevermore. I'm omnipotent and omniscient and omnipresent. The Lord. And it is precisely this one who is my shepherd, the one who tenderly cares, who protects and guards and guides even at cost and sacrifice to himself. And not just the shepherd, notice, my shepherd. Intensely personal. Imagine if you knew that with you at every step of your day, every point of your week, was the Lord your shepherd. Uh, the same almost unbearable tension is held by the prophet Isaiah. For example, Isaiah 57 verse 13. Uh, God dwells in the high and holy place. He's infinite in glory and majesty. And also with the one who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. Someone who's, who's broken, who's poor in spirit, who mourns, who hungers and thirsts for righteousness, you might say. And you see the same thing in the Lord's Prayer. How does it start? Our Father in heaven. He's the high and lofty one who inhabits heaven, who's Lord of heaven and earth, and at the same time he is our Father, the one who gives and sustains life, who knows and loves with deep and driving passion, the one who is utterly and viscerally involved. That's who God is. That will sustain your prayer. But I suspect that in practice we are functionally deists. 
And this is the root cause of why we don't pray. Our uh, pattern of prayer, or perhaps more accurately, our pattern of relative prayerlessness, reveals that we believe either that God is limited and therefore not worth praying to, or more likely, not really personal. And so not actually interested and responsive to our prayers. We, we don't much pray because not much praying is actually the perfectly predictable natural outcome of our understanding of how the world in fact works. I fear we don't much pray because we've imbibed the spirit of our age. For the functional deist, what you need to make life work is time and money and knowledge. That's the solution to all problems. If you've got more time and you've got more money and you have more expertise, then you can cruise through any problem that you encounter. You can take any opportunity that comes your way because the combination of those three things is power in this world, isn't it? Well, not if there is a living Lord. Uh, Tim Keller, whose uh, book on prayer is a key resource for this series, it's available at the bookshop. Um, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm kind of paid to be a Tim Keller fan, and so uh, I am. Uh, I'm pleased to say there is now one thing that he's written on which I don't think is the best thing written on the subject. Uh, it's not this book. This book actually is the best thing I've ever read on prayer, and so can I highly recommend that you get it. Uh, it's really exceptionally good, and I'm going to have a couple of quotes from it tonight. Uh, he's, he puts it pretty bluntly. Ready? This is, this is designed to kind of cause you to take stock. To fail to pray, then, is not merely to break... Sorry, is not to merely break some religious rule. It's, it's not that God says... Look, there's 16 things that I want you to do, and one of them is prayer, and so would you just get on and do it, please? And, and, and you've got to just do it, and it's your duty to do it, and if you do it well, then that's good. If you don't do it well, then I'm on your case. No, no, no. To fail to pray, then, is not to merely break some religious rule. It is a failure to treat God as God. You know, that's right at the start, right? I mean, I just want to clear this sort of out of the way to begin with. Right at the start, the key to a renewed and revived prayer life uh, is not so much discipline, it's not so much focus and resolve, it's not so much de determining that this time you're finally going to get it right for the rest of your life. No, it's a deepened vision of who God is both in himself and in relation to us. Which leads to our second point, why we need to pray. You see, on the one hand, I guess it's true that we need an answer to the question of why pray uh, when we are so often so little prayers. Uh, on the other hand, though, I'd suggest that it's a question that doesn't actually make a great deal of sense. You see, from Scripture's perspective, uh, to ask the question, why pray, is actually about as rational as asking, why breathe? 
There's not a question that's kind of occurred to you to, to, to ask, is it? Or you, you don't question yourself. Why, why breathe? Why, why eat? Why drink? They're just essential to life. Which is precisely what Psalm 63 says prayer is to our souls. Listen to it again, verse 1. <clears throat> o God, you are my God. I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I've looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. I will lift up my hands and call on your name. Um, the picture here in the psalm is of someone who is in the desert of life. Parched and broken and empty. Augustine, uh, the great 5th century Christian leader and theologian, spoke of human beings as having a God-shaped hole in their life. And uh, that, is a, that is a profoundly true insight. Um, though, though people uh, often enough don't want to admit it or even don't realise it at all, what Augustine saw was that each one of us, every human being, has a deep thirst for God. Uh, C.S. Lewis described it as a longing for joy which he'd experienced for many years before he became a Christian. He, he he was searching. It was literature, actually, that took him into it. Uh, often uh, this thirst is reflected when people talk about how meaningless and empty life can sometimes seem. And it's, it's the comedians, right, who are actually most able often to, to open this up to us because they can use their humour to say the hard things that we don't otherwise want to hear. Uh, Woody Allen put it this way, Life is divided into two camps, the horrible and the miserable. Charlie Brown put it like this, my new philosophy of life is to dread one day at a time. Do you feel the yearning in those comments? You see, what they express is the need for God in a dry and thirsty place. <clears throat> uh, I've only been really, really thirsty once in my life. It was on a summer bushwalk back in the good old days, uh, old, that is, uh, days, uh, in the Blue Mountains past the Canangra Walls. Uh, it's a two-day walk. It's about 50 kilometres. Uh, it felt about 150 kilometres. Uh, we knew there wasn't much water about. It was summer. Uh, it was 40 degrees. There was supposed to be a stream halfway through day one, and that meant you had to ration, ration your two-litre water bottle, because that's what you had to take, for half a day, except when we got there, the stream wasn't a stream. It was just this sort of ugly, dry, X stream. Uh, and the problem was we'd already drunk our two litres. And so we had another seven hours of walking in 40 degree heat with no water. And the thing about being really thirsty, I mean, not just thirsty like, oh, I think I'll go get a drink of water. Right? That's, that's not thirsty. 
I'm talking seriously dehydrated. The thing about being really thirsty is that you become obsessed with satisfying your thirst. You think about it, you fantasise about it, you dream pictures of taps just appearing around the corner. It is a non-ignorable desire. That's David's situation in this psalm. Uh, There's every likelihood to think that it's uh, written as he is being pursued by his own son Absalom who wants to murder his father. He's a thirst. He's in the wilderness. It's a dry and weary land where his soul thirsts and his flesh faints. He is absolutely at the end. And you may know something of that experience. You may know what it's like to be at the end of your resources for everything to be dry and dusty and parched. But notice, and you see here is the point, notice what David does in this experience of parchedness of soul. He thirsts and he directs his thirst toward God. He cries out to him. He says to God and to himself what is true even if he doesn't feel it because he knows it. You see, the only way that David can cope with what life throws at him in the wilderness is to seek God in prayer. Friends, the issue is not whether you will have dry, parched, wilderness experiences in your life. Of course you will. And it may even be the majority of your time in this world given that we walk by faith rather than by sight. So the question is not, is not whether you will have them. The question is what you'll do in them. Will you cry out to God like David here and say what is true? Remember that you've known God's power and glory In fact, you've known it even more clearly than David himself in Jesus Christ, crucified and resurrected. That will you affirm that his steadfast love is better than life and pledge yourself to live for his praise? Or will you turn to your own resources? Because, you see, that is always the great temptation when you're in the wilderness. Feeling thirsty, craving relief, We don't thirst for God. Instead, we seek to make life up for ourselves. Filling that God-shaped hole with something other than God. Which is like trying to satisfy your hunger by chewing gum. It doesn't work. It can't work. It can never work. In fact, it just makes things worse whether it's success in your chosen field that you reach out to to quench your soul's thirst as a substitute for God or power or sex or money or the numbness of alcohol or whatever it might be, it won't satisfy because only God can fill your soul. 
We need to pray in the famine. It's the only thing that will get you through. But we need to pray in the feast as well. You see it in verse 5. My soul is satisfied as with a rich feast and my mouth praises you with joyful lips when I think of you on my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night for you have been my help and in the shadow of your wings I sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. You see, this second portion of the psalm is the experience of the soul in fullness. In contrast to the thirst of a parched soul, the picture is of utter fulfilment and satisfaction. My soul is satisfied as with a rich feast. Uh, Think Christmas lunch, perhaps. You know what that's like? Rich feast where you just have so much. It goes on for hours. You get to a point where you're just so full of good things and a bit sort of lightheaded with the satisfaction and champagne. That's David here. And in that moment, my mouth praises you with joyful lips. He just can't get the Lord off his mind. He knows that all the good things that he has are gifts to him from God. You have been my help. And so in the feast, David will sing for joy in the shadow of his wings. Such a beautiful phrase, don't you think? And it just gets better and better. Uh, In economics, uh, there is uh, what's called the law of diminishing satisfaction. Uh, It's a very important uh, part of economics. It explains all uh, manner of things. Uh, For example, it explains why you go to McDonald's, the first Big Mac tastes better than the 25th Big Mac. I mean, if you ever tried to eat 25 Big Macs, not much fun. First one, pretty good. Well, good enough. 25th one, horrendous. It's why when you come in from outside working in a hot day, the first glass of water tastes better than the 16th. Uh, It's the same in relationships sometimes. I won't make any comments here, but some people you spend time with them and the fact that you don't see them again for 6 or 12 months doesn't actually bother you too much, diminishing satisfaction. But with others, that law doesn't apply, right? It doesn't apply. You spend time with them and you click... And what you want is more. And the more you're with them, the more you want to be with them. And the psalmist testifies that God is like that. That there is no diminishing satisfaction. That the closer you get to the Lord, the closer you want to get. That the better you know God, the more deeply you desire fellowship with him. Now notice that the, the psalmist um, is saying something slightly different from the fact that he's received God's gifts and he's thanking him for them. That's important. It's important to receive God's gifts with a thankful heart, but it's not quite what's on view here. No, it's not God's gifts so much, but God himself, which of course is his greatest gift to us the gift of himself. And so there's this sort of beautiful 
synergy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. Do you see what's so beautiful about this psalm of crying out to God is that it covers both seasons of the soul. Uh, God is worshipped and honoured and savoured both in the famine and in the feast. Um, Fainting is the form that worship takes when we're in the times that are parched and hard and gritty. And feasting is the form that worship takes when things are good. And praise and rejoicing is upon your lips. The heart that savours God above all things will experience yearning and longing and thirsting and panting and fainting in the dry wilderness. That's the normal experience in this world. And that same heart will experience feasting and satisfaction in the feast. Why do we pray? Why do we need to pray? Because your soul won't handle the times of fasting or the times of feasting in your life without clinging to the infinite personal God. You just won't be able to handle it. We've looked at why we don't pray. And we've seen how that's that's actually connected to why we need to pray. But perhaps uh, the underlying question is, uh, why is it that we can pray at all? Uh, In one sense, we've so far taken it for granted that prayer is available to us. And yet when you reflect upon it, you wonder exactly what is it that makes it possible for us to come into the presence of a holy and almighty God. And the answer of the new covenant in Jesus Christ is is nothing less than that we have been adopted into God's family. We come dressed fit for God. Fit for God when you pray. Because we come dressed in Jesus Christ. Uh, That's the whole point of the letter to the Galatians, which reaches... It's sort of crescendo at the end of chapter 3 and the start of chapter 4. Uh, the Apostle Paul is doing uh, battle against those who would say that the only way to be a child of God is to be a blood descendant of Abraham, the great, the great patriarch Abraham, or at the very least to take upon yourself the law of Moses. Uh, but Paul makes in uh, his letter to the Galatians a beautiful, a powerful, decisive point. He says, Jesus is the seed of Abraham. Jesus Christ is the promised descendant in whom all the promises made to Abraham will be fulfilled. And so the apostle's conclusion is just explosive. He says, everyone who is connected to Jesus Christ actually does belong to Abraham. If you've placed your life into Jesus' hands, if you've entrusted yourself to him, that is, in other words, if you've had faith expressed so graphically and beautifully in the identification of baptism, 
then you're a child of Abraham. That's what the apostle says. Whether you have his blood running through your veins or not. And therefore, you're an heir of the promises of God. You see how he says it in Galatians chapter 3, verse 26. For in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. As many of you as were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. And then verse 29, and if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. And my goodness, what promises. Uh, Most heirs inherit things. Houses and money and cars and paintings. Things as transient and useless in the face of death and sin as our own bodies are. But this inheritance is like none other. With this inheritance, the Father sends the very spirit of his son, Jesus Christ, into our hearts. God doesn't just give us things. God gives us himself. Do you see what the apostle is saying? Why can we pray? Because we belong to the household of God. We are children of the king. Actually, it's interesting. Uh, the, the word uh, translated children uh, is, uh, it's understandable that it's translated children because that's a nice gender-neutral term and all that kind of stuff. Uh, actually, the, the word is gender-specific. It's, it's kind of interesting. It's gender-specific in order to be gender-neutral. We're, we're all sons of God. I don't know if you've, you, you... I mean, I think I've told you this before. You women, you're all sons. Not because you've had a, you know, change or anything. No, because what you have is nothing other than what Jesus has. It's not that you have something in your right. No, you have something in his right. You are someone with a relationship by adoption that Jesus Christ has by nature. And relationship is always sustained by communication. His communication with us through the spirit-breathed, authoritative, inscripturated word of God and your communication with him as you cry out. Did you see, see what it is? Abba, Father. Taking Jesus' own intensely personal address to his Father onto your own lips because they belong to you now. Because you have what he has. In fact, it's even more intense and intimate than that. Uh, if, you, if you read it again carefully, you'll see that what the Apostle says is that the cry of our hearts to the Father is nothing other than the work of the indwelling Spirit of God in the depths of our own souls. It's God in us crying out to God, shaping us as sons of the Father. All right, let's draw the threads uh, together here as we begin this series. At at the start of his book, uh, Tim Keller distinguishes two kinds of prayer. Uh, He distinguishes, on the one hand, communion prayer, and on the other hand, mission prayer. Uh, Communion prayer, prayer which is communion with God uh, as an end in itself, 
mission prayer, on the other hand, prayer which extends that outward in seeing God's purposes fulfilled in the world. Actually, the two are related to one another, communion prayer and mission prayer. Because God has a mission purpose for each one of us. Namely, that we know and love and serve him first and foremost, transform more and more into his own likeness. Uh, Keller puts it like this. Prayer is the main way we experience deep change. Let me just pause you there for a moment and just think about this. Um, I find progress in the Christian life very slow. I find prayer very difficult. And what Keller is saying is there's a connection between those two things, do you see? Prayer is the main way we experience deep change. Not, not just superficial change, kind of change of a few patterns or habits. No, deep change, and you see how he describes it, the reordering of our loves. That makes sense, doesn't it? After all, that's what Jesus said it was, to live for God, to love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind and soul and strength and to love your neighbour as yourself. That's what it is that goes wrong in our world. It's what goes wrong in your world. Disordered loves. And prayer, says Keller, is the main way we experience deep change, the reordering of our loves. Prayer is how God gives us so many of the unimaginable things that he has for us. Indeed, prayer makes it safe for God to give us many of the things we most desire. You can have them and you won't love them too much, you see. Only because of prayer. Prayer is the way we know God, the way we finally treat God as God. Prayer is simply the key to everything we need to do and be in life. We must learn to pray. We have to. And he sums it up with this kind of very challenging, I think it's meant to be challenging comment, the infallible test of spiritual integrity, Jesus says, is your private prayer life. Why pray? It's kind of obvious by now, don't you think? Because when we pray to the infinite personal God, it changes things. It changes us ourselves and it changes our world. It changes things, not because prayer has any great power in itself, but because God changes things and he has great power in himself and he hears the prayers of his people and responds genuinely. We must learn to pray. We have to. Our intent in this series is to ask Jesus to teach us to pray. Because in prayer we join with God in communion and in mission 
participating in his loving dominion over ourselves and over the world. Which, of course, is what we're always supposed to have done as creatures bearing his image. I don't know about you, uh, but there I am in my study most mornings, feeble little voice and ignorant little mind and wayward little heart and scared little will. And yet by praying, as I enter the presence, the holy ground of God's presence, I'm heard in Christ. And God, in his unimaginable grace and condescension, actually does things on the basis of my feeble words in Christ. I have precious little power over my world. But God has unlimited power. And in prayer, he opens it up to us. Is there anything more wonderful in all the world? We're going to pray. Kind of makes sense. And uh, then uh, Sui and Eve and Ross are going to sing a song for us, uh, which just is an opportunity. They're going to sing to us, really, in a sense. Uh, I mean, the prayer, the song is to God that he hears us. And it's a meditation upon the sheer wonder that the God of the universe hears people like us. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, And as we cry out to you, whether at the moment our souls are in a parched place or full to the brim, we cry out to you, our Father in heaven. Give to every one of us, we pray, a fresh deeper vision of your greatness and power, your love and your nearness, of your good fatherly care for us. And do a deep transforming work in our lives, we ask. We pray for this whole series that as we call out upon you to teach us to pray, So you do great work amongst us. That above all things, we'd be a praying people. Because above all things, our hearts are set upon you. And we ask it in Jesus' name and for your glory. Amen.